Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. February. Welcome to Morning with Carmen. I'm your host, Carmen LaBerge. Hey, I'm going to encourage you to um, to believe today and to have faith in the face of fear. The headline news today is, um, is going to be full. I'm just warning you in advance if you haven't heard already. It's going to be full of some pretty fearful or fear-invoking or fear-provoking numbers. The number of new infections in Ube province of China, which most of us, let's just be completely honest, we don't even know there was a Ube province of China um, before a few weeks ago. And now we're very aware um, of, uh, of a particular city in China uh, that has 11 million people that we'd never heard of before, and a province, Ube, um, where there are now... Um, in one day, the confirmed cases of a new infection uh, rose by 14,840, just on Thursday alone. And, and you're going to say to yourself, wow, that's a, um, that's a shocking rise in the number of these confirmed cases of the coronavirus, which we noted yesterday now has a name, but nobody's using it. So <clears throat> we're just going to continue calling it the coronavirus until the name actually catches on. Um, and... What I don't want to provoke is some sort of hysteria, right? We want to be prayerful. We want to have faith in the face of uh, fear. We want to certainly be cautious. Um, You can't really travel to China right now uh, from the United States of America because none of our major carriers are flying there. In fact, United and American have both extended uh, the time in which they will not be making international flights to China from the United States. They've now extended that uh, not only to the end of March, but to the end of April. The death toll from the coronavirus rose to roughly 1,360. Um, nearly all of those fatalities are in China. The total number of confirmed cases worldwide has surpassed 60,000. And so we're talking about something that um, has people's attention. There's a 14th confirmed case here in the United States of America. But again, um, other than one individual uh, who contracted the virus from an individual who had traveled to Wuhan, every single one of these cases currently in the United States um, was someone who was in China, in Wuhan, in the city of Wuhan, in the province of, uh, of Ubei um, at, at the time of the outbreak. <clears throat> there are currently 600 people being quarantined in the United States right now. Most of those are State Department employees and their families, but others who were traveling uh, in China as well. And um, of particular concern to me in terms of my prayers are all these people on all these cruise ships that are quarantined in these ports. And uh, and the, the Diamond Princess that is docked under quarantine in Japan, that particular story um, is, uh, is, I think, becoming particularly 
problematic. There are now 218 uh, people affected on board that cruise ship and some 3,700 people unable to uh, to disembark. Um, 44 new cases announced just on Thursday related to that one cruise ship. So let's be praying for those people. I, I can't imagine being quarantined for that long of a period of time in such a small space, trapped on a boat. Um, let's pray for uh, the very, very small um, staff that is serving all of those people who are quarantined in their rooms. I mean, just on and on and on and on and on and on. So concerns about those things. We're not going to have fear, but we are going to have faith and we are going to pray. All right. First up this morning, I've got a conversation with Ben Johnson. Um, we're going to talk about something that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, said on Monday uh, during a lecture at Georgetown. Um, I think that if you if you remember the Equal Rights Amendment and the effort to amend the Constitution of the United States via something called the Equal Rights Amendment a generation ago, you're going to really be interested in this next conversation. Ruth Bader Ginsburg may just, you know, put a knife through the heart of it. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Ben Johnson is back. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. You can also find him at the Acton Institute, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Welcome back, Ben. Good to be with you, Carmen. There's always uh, so many things that you and I could talk about on any given uh, Thursday morning. Let's start with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, who um, on Monday at a forum at Georgetown University's law school um basically said, hey, the Equal Rights Amendment, you know, had an opportunity to be ratified, but um, now is, you can't point to it and say, hey, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, and therefore it should become part of the, or is justifiably a part of the United States Constitution, because she argued that um, other states who had voted to ratify it have since changed their minds, and if you're going to count Virginia's late-to-the-party vote, then you have to allow other states to change their vote as well. What's going on here? That's exactly right. The uh, ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, was introduced in uh, March of 1972. And of course, as part of that, you have to have a certain number of states ratify the amendment in order for it to become part of the Constitution. Uh, It was well on its way. It had a head of steam, uh, no question about it. It's a very short amendment. I, I don't know if anyone remembers the Equal Rights Amendment, but uh, we can we can discuss that perhaps in just a moment. But but uh, they had a time limit on it, which is that they had until June of 1982 to pass. Well, uh, several states went uh, all in for this, and then you had the eventual backlash writ, uh, led by Phyllis Schlafly, among others. So many of your listeners are probably familiar with uh, the, the late Phyllis Schlafly and her work in standing up against the Equal Rights Amendment. And in point of fact, at least five states rescinded uh, their support for it. So instead of uh, having legislation in favor of adopting the Equal Rights Amendment, they ended up going the opposite direction, and you had states withdrawing their support. In June of 1982, the time limit expired. So it shouldn't have been controversial, except that Virginia decided to go forward uh, just recently, as as you noted, and support the Equal Rights Amendment. So they they asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg, should this time limit be extended? And she said very simply, very curtly, no. 
if the law is to mean anything, then the law is to mean exactly what it says uh, on its face. If there's a uh, if there's a time limit imposed, then the time limit has to be respected. And as you pointed out, since five states have withdrawn their support, that means that it's not the 38th state at any rate. So now they need five more states uh, to change their mind or to get five different states to come in and adopt the Equal Rights Amendment so that it becomes part of the U.S. Constitution. So for once, uh, I'm all the way with the notorious RBG. (laughs) Me too. Um, Now, she concluded by suggesting that, um, you know, if folks were interested in an Equal Rights Amendment, that the entire process would need to be restarted. Um, the the conversation related to this has really changed pretty dramatically since 1972. And what we have before us now in Congress is not um, an equal rights amendment related to men and women. We have something called the Equality Act. And I think that when we're having this conversation in 2020, we're no longer really having a con- the same conversation that was being had in 1972. Not at all. Uh, the you know, the uh, text of the uh, Equal Rights Amendment, uh, as was introduced, is, is very short. Really, the uh, the major part of it is Section 1, which says it's just one sentence. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That sounds simple enough. Uh, it, it Very simply, it sounds like it uh, prohibits any kind of discrimination whatsoever. Uh, however, uh, and at that time, the conversation, uh, as we have to remember, the context of 1972 was that we were four years away from the height of the Vietnam War. Vietnam was still going on. And um, one of the issues that came up was if men can be drafted, wouldn't this mean that women could be drafted as well if you can't make any distinction between the sexes? And, of course, there have been steps in that direction most recently by the, the most uh, recent previous administration to try and uh, move in that direction. Women have been put into combat positions, so that sort of prohibition has been uh, lifted. The only the only question would be uh, whether that would apply to the draft, and certain courts have said in the past that uh, the, this is, in fact, a form of discrimination uh, against women. Now, the real subtext of this, of course, is that the National Organization for Women now said at the time, and this is a quote from a now publication, denial of access to abortion is sex discrimination as it denies women and only women control over their reproductive lives. So occasionally you see in pro-life states, uh, 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 one of the uh, uh, Democratic members will introduce a bill, for example, uh, banning Viagra or something like this. And the idea is that they are denying men control over their own bodies, quote unquote, the way that, den- that abortion denies women control over their bodies. Now, the problem with that is that uh, the body that's being aborted isn't the mother's. The, the body that's being aborted is a totally separate, distinct, and uh, another human being with its own life, uh, its, its own DNA. A completely separate and irreplaceable human being is being lost in the process. So the logic does not apply. But uh, that's, that's what's going on it now. Now, you've mentioned the Equality Act, which is that, in fact, there would be no distinction on the basis of sexual identification uh, or gender identity, which is, say, transgender people, people who identify as women, uh, would, would then have complete access to uh, all forms of private facilities, intimate facilities, restrooms, showers, overnight accommodations on field trips at schools. All of these things would be uh, equalized depending on uh, if, if someone identifies with uh, the opposite uh, biological sex, then they would have to be housed by the opposite biological sex. Churches and 
religious institutions uh, may or may not have an exemption when it comes to hiring. So theoretically, you could have a Christian school that has to hire a transgender teacher to teach their students. It's it's that kind of uh, a bill that creates tremendous confusion. Uh, it, localize, it, it centralizes power in the hands of the federal government. And uh, quite frankly, you saw in the last administration, the Obama administration was uh, enforcing laws that uh, were intended to to protect women on the basis of sex as though they applied to gender identity. Uh, they came up with a sort of fanciful idea. So I think you've got an additional layer of legal insanity over and above uh, merely the text. If this were a U.S. constitutional uh, amendment, then you would just have to convince five members of the uh, Supreme Court that, uh, in fact, it applies to gender identity, even if it doesn't say that it applies to gender identity. And a lot of lower courts have already signed on to that uh, Faustian bargain. All right. When we come back from the break, I want to talk with you about um, the the continuing confusion, um, the deepening confusion in our culture related to the definition of marriage and who may uh, constitute a married couple in the United States of America. Um, I noted that Utah lawmakers voted unanimously on Monday to decriminalize polygamy among consenting adults. So that conversation up next with Ben Johnson here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer, or you can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, um, Utah. All right, so here's what I understand has happened. Utah lawmakers on Monday unanimously approved a bill that would decriminalize polygamy among consenting adults. Um, despite arguments from opponents who said that the law would, you know, potentially embolden uh you know, I don't know, people who've redefined marriage in ways that seem open to me by the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court just a few years ago. I mean, like, I guess here would be my question. If if by the Supreme Court's decision, uh, marriage is no longer defined as necessarily between a man and a woman, why is it necessarily defined as between any two people? Why is the number two? I guess that would is going to be the question that... um that we're going to have to answer. Well, you've put your finger on it, which is uh, this is something that when the the initial definition of marriage, which is held, it, it's a pre-political institution, of course. This has been the definition of marriage uh, since the the uh, uh, influence of Christianity has taken hold across the West. So thousands of years, uh, marriage has always met a man and a woman, one man and one woman, and uh, the two are together. Uh, in, for most of the most uh, of the period, it's meant that you are together for life. That's been the legal definition. Divorce has even been something that's been discouraged or not available uh, in in most areas for a very long time. Uh, and if if there were, then uh, up until very recently, you had to prove grounds. So you had to have a reason to be divorced. You couldn't simply divorce within that institution. So the the idea of marriage has always been something that's been upheld and sanctified by our laws. Uh, when we when we took a step away from that in Obergefell, we eliminated the the sexual component, which is that the idea you'd have a, a sexual complementarity among the two sexes, that was eliminated. So the question then uh, was raised when this whole issue came forward: if the number and if the sex is is uh, up for grabs, why isn't the number? Uh, why why limit yourself to two? 
And at the time, everyone said, that's a ridiculous question. Uh, that'll never come up. You're scaremongering, fearmongering, that this would never open the door. Well, now we see uh, five years later that uh, this is, in fact, what's taking place in Utah. They've decriminalized polygamy. Now, as you know, Utah, in order to be admitted uh, as a state to the United States, had to criminalize polygamy. And uh, there's, there's always been a sort of a, uh, turning a blind eye in certain corners because there are certain fundamentalist sects of, of uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints or Mormonism that uh, are offshoots of the official Mormon church that still practice polygamy. Uh, and uh, they tend to have uh, certain legal areas where they have uh, the ability to practice that on their own. Uh, people are, of course, familiar with uh, Warren Jeffs, uh, or maybe they've seen TV series like uh, Sister Marriage and, and uh, Big Love and things of that sort. So you have a lot of people together in the same home saying that they are married to one another. Now, uh, obviously, the, it, it's been illegal for that uh, to be uh, part of the law and to recognize yourself in that particular way. Uh, the state wouldn't put its stamp of approval on that. So uh, and, and in uh, many places, it was illegal. Well, Utah has rescinded that at this point, uh, saying that what consenting adults do is up to them. And obviously it is. But uh, we should also keep in mind now, Utah is one of the few states that uh, has been taking a stance against pornography, which was a, an article that you had sent over as well. Uh, they have taken a strong stance against pornography. They say it's very helpful, what, uh, very harmful to those who, who view it. Well, what is even more harmful is having multiple people cohabiting who are not related to one another. Uh, my, my friend Brad Wilcox of uh, the American Enterprise Institute has studied this, and by the way, himself a Mormon, has studied this in depth. And uh, there's no question, the most likely place that anyone is going to be abused, whether it's physically, mentally, sexually, or any other way, is in a relationship where there, there are two people who are not married to one another. Now, when you throw in multiple people who uh, are quote-unquote married but are not related to the offspring of their spouse directly, that also increases the likelihood for abuse. It also increases the likelihood for having severe emotional problems. Uh, you're about five times more likely to have severe emotional problems uh, if you're in a cohabiting relationship. Cohabiting households uh, have uh, more than twice. It's 116% more likely to smoke marijuana. 119% uh, more likely to see their parents break up. So you have severe issues that go along with this. Not only should we frame our, our laws in uh, the idea of whatever any two consenting adults want to do, they should be able to do, but we should also have an eye to the children who are going to be living in these situations that this is not good for them. Uh, and there's a reason that this order has been, uh, has been sustained, has become the legal norm throughout uh, all of the West, and that is that not only does it reflect uh, the Bible, which always reflects what's good for, for people in their, in their innate souls, but it also reflects what's good for children. And uh, so we've protected children legally, and the idea that we're stepping away from that uh, says that every institution in society really is up for grabs. All right, we have to, and you and I should end this conversation on a more hopeful note. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Every, yeah, and, no, and, and, I think you're and, right. So I, I, I don't so think the, that this will ever catch on. I, I think that we're we're. Uh, I, I think that you will see it presented as uh, the the next civil rights uh, hope uh, the next civil rights uh, hurdle to overcome, and you'll see throuples and so on. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think that uh, the idea that uh, this is going to to become the norm. We're not that eroded. We're not that far down the line from our Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, which is which is what has protected us. 
Uh, we've seen an erosion of faith, but we haven't seen a complete abandon, abandonment of that. And God has not abandoned us and will not abandon us. So uh, his word will not go out void. If we continue to preach the word, we will call back this nation uh, to kneel before Jesus Christ and, and understand the wisdom that comes forth from him, including the reality that a man will leave uh, his uh, his home and a woman will leave her family and those two will become one flesh and it's only two that become one flesh. Yeah, and from Genesis to Revelation, um, you know, marriage is not first and foremost about us. It is uh, God's actual, you know, it's God's story. And and human marriages are simply uh, intended to be a reflection, an experiential expression of, of an eternal reality, this relationship between Christ and the church. So it does point beyond uh, the here and now, and um, and it only does so when it accurately reflects that relationship, which is exclusive and um, and is distinct. And so thank you um, for engaging. I, I feel like this is probably a conversation we're going to have the opportunity to return to in the future, as is the life conversation and the conversation about uh, equality um, or the Equality Act. I mean, all these things are going to keep uh, bubbling up. So, Ben, thank you, as always, for being with us today and helping us navigate our way faithfully through the headlines. Thank you so much. Always, I always look forward to Thursday mornings, my conversations with Carmen. Thank you. Well, that likewise, likewise. All right, we got to take a quick break uh, for Greg Laurie, and then we'll be right back. So when we think about um, the Bible, we think about something that, as Christians, we uh, spend time in every single day. Why? Because we want to know God, and we want to um, be with God. And one of the ways that we can spend time with God is in His Word, um, seeking to know Him more, uh, reading the stories of uh, His relationship with others in the past. Uh, discovering more about God's character and his mercies new every morning. I mean, on and on and on. Lots of people are not exposed to the Bible in um, in a positive way, certainly early in their life. And the, the people at the Museum of the Bible, the Green family happens to be behind this, of, the, of Hobby Lobby, um, they want to expose everybody to this book. The, the, what you and I know as, you know, God's Word, but at the Museum of the Bible, they really are interested in exposing everybody, regardless of their background, regardless of their worldview, to the Bible as the most, ex, most significant text in all of human history. And so um, up next, I'm going to have a conversation with Michael McAfee. Now, Michael is in the third generation of what we know as the Green family. So David Green started Hobby Lobby in his garage, um, went putting together frames for like 15 cents a piece, and grew it, grew it into this, you know, very large uh, family-owned uh, business. Steve Green is uh, a person who's been on the program as well. Uh, Steve is David's son, and Steve Green is the person who really was at the center of the Hobby Lobby case that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court related to uh, the, the the mandate that everybody provide uh, abortion patients to their employees through their health plan based on Ob- Obamacare. So we remember that conversation with Steve Green. Well, now we're in the next generation. Michael married Lauren. Lauren is Steve's daughter. And so Michael McAfee's up next. Um, and we're going to talk of, across a range of issues. And one of those is opportunities for you and your family or your church group to go to D.C. and experience the Museum of the Bible. But we're also going to talk about um, some other things as well, just fascinating about this multi-generational 
family of Christians who have invested themselves so thoroughly um, in our common life. So up next, Michael McAfee. Teens are prone to test their parents in every possible way. It's part of their built-in and craving desire for independence. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Every kid is going to try and push the envelope in some way. So you as a parent need to be ready. Establish a clear and undeniable standard for what's expected in your home. I call it a belief system for discipline. It's all about positive training and reinforcement of dearly held convictions. And of course, it includes consequences when the rules are broken. Having a belief system in your home lets the whole family know about the lines that can't be crossed. It's a tool you need when your teen starts testing the boundaries. And someday, it'll lead your teen to establish similar beliefs of their own. Learn how to get your teen back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am thrilled to be joined today by Michael McAfee. Uh, Michael, among other things, is um, the husband of Lauren, the father of Zion. We have actually had a couple of his family members on the program before. Uh, So, Michael, you're actually the third generation of the Green family to share with us on Mornings with Carmen. David has appeared on the show, and so has Steve. Uh, And so, welcome. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. What an honor. Thank you for having me. So we love the Museum of the Bible. We have been, um, I have my hard hat. Uh, We've been talking about it since it was just an idea. And um, it's just, it's a thrill to not only know that it's up and running, but that people are really enjoying it. Why don't you, um, why don't you just give us an update on the Museum of the Bible and how people have been responding, what the response has been to the entire thing? We've had a fantastic response. Uh, We've been so pleased. We opened in November of 2017 there in Washington, D.C., right off of the mall, just three blocks from the Capitol. Uh, In the first year, we were a free museum and saw just right at a million visitors come through. And we're one of the most uh, well-attended museums in the country. Um, To kind of make the budget work, we've been a charged admission museum. Uh, It's still the best deal I know of uh, that I can speak of in terms of museums and attractions. Uh, and have still had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people come through. Uh, the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible walkthrough has won awards for being one of the most outstanding uh, museum exhibitions. And and we've had the really cool thing. I was there this last weekend during the National Prayer Breakfast. And I mean, you see, you know, families from every stripe and background uh, coming to Museum of the Bible, um, all kind of denominations and even all faiths to explore the Bible for themselves. All right. And that leads us into a conversation about Inspire Experiences. And that's really one of my motivations to have you on today, because this is a brand new um, way of experiencing um, D.C. and the Museum of the Bible. So talk with us about uh, Inspire Experiences. And let me just tell our listeners, you can find you can find them at inspirex.org. Yeah, well, so part of the motivation for this came from Um, I helped guide a trip to Israel last summer, and as I'm guiding uh, this group through Israel, we're looking at uh, the ancient, you know, biblical sites, and as well, we're kind of looking at modern-day Israel and the impact of of the Bible and Christianity and things like that. 
And it made me realize that my work at, I've worked at Museum of the Bible full-time since 2013, that there was a great trip just waiting to be kind of unpacked for families and churches and, and certainly student groups. Obviously, there's a lot of schools that take their kind of senior trip or eighth grade trip to D.C. And so Inspire Experiences was really birthed out of that idea of what if we helped create a robust experience where, um, where we could bring churches and families and student groups to Museum of the Bible, answer the questions that especially millennials, my generation is asking about the scriptures, and then take them out into the greater Washington, D.C. area, looking at other monuments and museums and government buildings, and showing them the positive impact Christianity has had on our world. Okay, so um, if I were to go to inspireex.org, um, first of all, what am I going to find there now? And then what, um, what should I anticipate uh, coming? So currently we've got our, our splash page up. We just launched as a ministry um, about a week ago. And so we've got a, a splash page up. It'll give you just kind of the basics of what the problem is that we're trying to address, how we do that, uh, and then a, a very small uh, contact form so that we can customize a trip. So for instance, right now, most groups are requesting kind of our three-day trip package. And what that looks like is it could be a long weekend for them, or it could be just half of their one-week trip in D.C. Uh, but for a group of 20, we would help get them to a hotel near Museum of the Bible. And then every day, the museum itself takes so much time to get through. We want to give them a little bit of time each day at MOTV, and then a little bit of time showing them um, you know, scripture that's on the Lincoln Memorial and on the MLK Memorial and and throughout D.C., give a capital tour and show different places where uh, the Bible has uh, impacted some of our founders. So that's kind of a high-level overview, but uh, we do everything from three-day to seven-day trips like that. All right, I am talking with Michael McAfee. We're talking, among other things, about uh, this new ministry, uh, how you, your family, um, your youth group, your church might experience D.C. and the Museum of the Bible. Um, check out inspireex.org. Michael, the Bible is, um, uh, it, it's important to you personally. It's also per, important to you professionally. You have written a book entitled uh, Not What You Think. Um, tell us a little bit about your scripture engagement and your attempts to get others to engage meaningfully in scripture. Yeah. So since 2013, I mentioned I've been working at Museum of the Bible. Most of that time, I was just traveling around trying to share the the coming museum with uh, other millennials and with churches. And as I did, I found that through conversations with other uh, people in my age group, my peers, that uh, we the Bible was largely misunderstood. And so there was a small minority like me that were highly Bible engaged, that loved the scriptures, um, and yet there was a kind of equal hostility towards the Bible on the opposite end, and uh, and then a lot of just confusion on what the Bible is kind of in the middle of about 60% of millennials that would be Bible neutral or maybe even Bible friendly but aren't engaging with it and just kind of view it as a, an interesting book or a book of morality or something like that. And so not what you think was really an effort to kind of repackage and reframe the Bible uh, to reintroduce the scriptures to a generation that has uh, that hates when you know older generations label us before getting to know us as individuals, and yet what we kind of wanted to say was, haven't we done that to the Bible? Haven't we labeled the Bible and made 
judgment on what the Bible is before you engaged with it personally for yourself. You're just kind of taking what others have told you to be true about it. And so uh, not what you think was our effort to um, rebrand the Bible, not to change the, the product. The product's perfect. It's inspired. But um, but to give it a fresh look so that hopefully our generation will take a second look at the book of books. So I'm continuing my conversation with Michael McAfee. You can check out his website, michael.bible. You can check out his book, Not What You Think. Um, it is uh, it is a book about why the Bible might be nothing we expected, yet everything we need. When we come back, I'm going to um, I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit. I'm going to ask Michael some more personal questions. He met his wife, Lauren, when they were seven years old. Um, I'm going to talk with him um, just about some more personal things. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Michael McAfee. Um, among other things, he is uh, a pastor. He teaches the Bible. Um, he is an advocate of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., He's also the husband uh, to Lauren and now the dad to Zion. Um, Michael, again, thank you for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks. It's so fun being here. So take us back um, to just growing up alongside a little girl named Lauren. You guys uh, apparently met when you were seven years old. Um, and, um, you know, she's a green, which in which for most of us, seems like a, a highly esteemed thing to be, right? We think of the Green family. We think of Hobby Lobby. We remember praying alongside um, them um, through their Supreme Court case. Um, we, you know, we shop there. It's a bigger-than-life thing to imagine being a part of such a family. And so just talk with us about that journey um, and, you know, and, and your family. Well, I certainly hold my in-laws in high esteem today, and I probably would have then as much as you can hold someone in high esteem when you're seven, but I had the good fortune of growing up with Lauren, and so I, um, it, it was never really intimidating for me because I was just naive, probably. Um, the, the nice thing is, is we, we, I usually say my greatest accomplishment in my life is I escaped the friend zone. Very few men have been able to do that, but I did. We were really good friends for, you know, 10 years, and uh, especially since middle school on, and then started dating at 17 and uh, and got married at, at 21. So the, um, the the Green family is a, is a great family. Obviously, they've got a lot of notoriety between Hobby Lobby, Supreme Court case, MOTB, uh, but I can tell you Pretty honestly, as, as an in-law that has seen them at their best and their worst, they're um, they're the same type of people that you would see, you know, it, it, or have in your church. I mean, they would just be, they're completely anonymous. Even in, Steve and Jackie still go to the same church that, you know, I'm a, one of the teaching pastors at, and um, there's a large percentage of people that don't realize who they are. So, I mean, it's, they're very humble, hardworking, Christ-loving people. Absolutely. Um so people might imagine that um, in a family that uh, has significant resources by any by any definition um, that, you know, you your life with Lauren would be would be set and the two of you would never encounter any challenges. And if you did encounter any kind of challenge, um, there would be a solution to that, you know, quote unquote problem. Talk, talk with us about how uh, life maybe has been different, particularly on 
the family front than um, than maybe you had initially expected? Yeah, so I I don't know that I initially expected much of anything, but it was shortly after I married into the family that they had a an important family meeting that kind of defined uh, the future of the family, which uh, really was just an outworking of what they had been saying for years, which was the business didn't belong to uh, the Green family, belongs to God, and the Green family is stewards of it for this time. And so uh, in, I think it was 2011 or something like that, 2010 maybe, they had a family meeting where they, the G1 and 2 and 3, generation 1, 2, and 3, so grandpa's generation, David Green, parents' generation, Steve Green, and then our generation, came together and they brought the legal team in and said, hey, we'd like to ask all of us to sign away any rights that we have uh, to the company or its resources. And so there was full participation in that. And what that means is that if the company were to ever be um, sold and or if if anyone were to uh, try to make some kind of legal claim to a portion of the company, um, they wouldn't be able to make that claim, that it belongs truly to God and that it, the profits of selling the business would go towards Christian ministries. And in general, there's no, there's no trust funds. There's no, um, you know, sort of, uh, just kind of income that you get. You don't get a preferential job necessarily. Like, I mean, every single member of the family that works at Hobby Lobby started off in the warehouse or in a store, or, you know, just kind of slowly working their way up. So, um, they've really wanted to make sure that nothing was just kind of handed to, um, to us. And I think that's really helped both to develop in us that hard work ethic that is required um, and is God honoring as well that it has helped to eliminate some of the uh, jealousy and family tensions that I think could arise from uh, a family of wealth. And so obviously my perspective is just limited to this one family and this one experience, but, but I think they've done a good job of trying to neutralize that. All right, now I want to talk a little bit about G4, um, because yes. G4 is Zion. Tell, tell us who Zion is and how we can be praying for your family. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, so my wife and I have been had been in the adoption process for, for years. We got matched with a beautiful little girl who turns two this month, um, and uh, we went and picked her up in September, uh, came back from China, and um, her, her Chinese name was Zai, and so we renamed her Zion, and... Uh, in November, they found a cancerous tumor on her liver just through some kind of other, you know, normal testing and things like that. And so rushed to surgery, successfully removed it, had two rounds of chemotherapy. And, uh, and just a couple of weeks ago, we found out that she, she indeed is in remission from her cancer. And so we have been just on a high celebrating uh, God's provision and providence throughout that process in uh, not only bringing her to us, but allowing us to catch uh, what could have been a, a, a life-threatening tumor before it became uh, as serious as it could have been. So um, please continue to pray for her. She's still adjusting to life with us, life in America, and and certainly had a an interesting first, you know, four months or so with all of the um, hospital visits, but it looks like we're trailing off from being at the hospital every day to every week, to every month, to every quarter. And so that's a welcome change for our family. For those of you who are on social media, you can follow Michael at Michael McAfee on Twitter. Um, And Michael, I just, uh, I I remember reading this on your page at one point, um, 
that you didn't know how it was possible to feel so much pain over someone you had known for such a short period of time. I think at that point you'd, you know, you'd only known Zion for two months, but, but you, um, but you'd been her dad in the heart of the father for, you know, right. I mean, I think that's how this knitting together process works. So it's beautiful how God is building, um, continues to build your family um, and the next generation. We'll certainly be praying for you and Lauren and Zion. Thank you for your work. Um, on behalf of uh, of the Museum of the Bible, thank you for serving as a pastor, and um, and thank you for sharing with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. I really appreciate you having me on. We're going to remind our listeners, um, if you want to go to D.C. and have a different kind of experience, either as a family or as a, a, a group from your church or maybe your church in general, go check out inspireex.org. We'll be right back. So much uh, before us today, so much opportunity, so much, um, so much that we don't quite yet know what to expect. And so let me encourage you to expect today the unexpected. Anticipate miracles. So don't expect the unexpected like, oh, the other shoe is going to drop. Um, expect the unexpected in the spirit of, wow, some fresh grace of God is going to drop. Like, right? Uh, God is going to pour forth grace today in and through you in ways that right now you cannot even anticipate. And so expect the unexpected today and anticipate miracles, knowing that with God, all things really are possible. And and so whatever seems impossible today, I encourage you to um, just recognize who God is, how great he is in terms of like the magnitude of God, but also how good he is in terms of the, the genuine depth of his love for you, the genuine depth of God's love for you. On this Valentine's Eve, I want to remind every single one of us that we are beloved of the one who is love. In our culture, we have often made love itself into a God, and in fact, the reverse is true. We worship the God who is, in fact, love, and his mercies are new every morning, and you are an agent You are an agent of his grace in the world today. We've got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Stick with us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.